everybody, welcome to the 30-second podcast coming to you from Shut Up and Sit Down. That's a good introduction. It's not first thing in the morning for me or anything. Matt, you're wet. It's not... Um, yes, I am wet. I'd prefer not to talk about that, but um, both me and Quentin got very, very wet today. Quentin, um, really. you watched him steal a quiche. Uh, steal? I wait. This is slander. We baked. A, we made a quiche. Look, we've eaten a quiche, all right. And when I was younger, I had some friends of mine that used to take the mick out of me once because I, I, I had a day in which I felt terrible and sleepy, and I kept saying I've had too much quiche. I've overdosed <laughs> on quiche. Yeah, there's no way that school kids will turn that into a. And meme. everyone thought that the idea of overdosing on quiche was some sort of joke, but I know now as an adult that it's a serious thing. It really is. Going, I mean, if you're an American who's, like, not really into quiche, maybe it's more of a continental thing, then it's basically the equivalent of... I think it's like the pastry equivalent of having a burrito in the fact that if you're not careful, you can really quite quickly incapacitate yourself in a serious and dangerous way. I've got a couple of questions for Paul. uh, The first of which being, uh, how has your diet changed since you moved to Canada? Ooh. um, Oh, God. Uh, That's really... Okay. No, it's a good good question. I'm on the spot. No, I'm going to answer it. Um... I eat out a lot more. Uh, I have less cheese because cheese is more expensive here, which is strange. Really? Yeah. Um, and Canada famously having not unlocked cheese on the tech tree of life. But my second question was going to be, <laughs> how's your board gaming diet changed? Because in case you've tuned in uh, just from wiggling the frequency knobs on your radio accidentally, this is a podcast all about board games. And quiche and food. And, and we can make this about what we like, but... Um, I don't know. I, th- I feel like I've played a lot more social games, actually. And maybe that's the, the crowd that I'm with, all the people that I know. But uh, I've played so much Spyfall recently. And obviously we've reviewed Spyfall. We've talked about Spyfall. We really like Spyfall because it's very good. It hasn't got old yet. Yeah, I, I saw a question. Uh, this was on uh, Twitter or something recently. But people were saying in their Spyfall group, one of the questions they asked to ferret, ferret out spies because they're just playing on such a deep level now, is what's the sec- What's your second favourite smell yeah. about the place where we were? That's such a good question. Yeah, because it gives away nothing, and yet, you know, can... Oh, it's such... It, yeah, it's it's really... There is, there is something about it where, you know, you, your first couple of games, you get used to it, you get into it, and then if you have, I think, your, your regular group of players, you develop almost a kind of a meta, and it just becomes a, a thing of... You know each other and you know how to prod each other in certain ways and you get to know the locations better so there's you know there's fewer surprises and there's more attempts to catch people out by pretending that you know you're uh, at the police station instead of the military base or something yeah absolutely so you but you i was curious before we started recording you mm-hmm. let slip that it's not just that social deduction game you played for the first time you played uh, the one and only Battlestar Galactica board game. Did you actually away from the Cylons? Cylons are coming. Maybe there are. So there's two possibilities. One is you either practice that beforehand, which is great, or you came up with that, which is great. It's the latter. I'm not gonna lie. That's great. I did. I, I actually live in Cylon-occupied Caprica. Uh, I can't take Battlestar Galactica seriously anymore because the actual, like, the whole first season, they just, like, they just filmed something downtown in Vancouver and they're like, oh, Cylon-occupied Caprica. And you go, really? no, it's, it's the library. It's just the library. <laughs> and it's so weird. It really is. Uh, yeah, I played Battlestar Galactica a little while ago. Didn't mention it. I'm still thinking about it. Because maybe you're a Cylon. 
well. didn't want us to know. I wasn't. I've played it. I've got it in my uh, in my cupboard of of, uh, of wonders, and it's been at the bottom of the cupboard of my wonders, the cupboard of wonderbar. I've lost the ability to speak. <laughs> I'm blaming the quiche. That's why I, I started this podcast because you about overdosed. Quiche. It wasn't irrelevant. I needed you guys to know that I'm basically suffering from a medical condition right now, and it's going to affect <laughs> the quality and consistency and everything. But no, um, it's been at the back and the bottom of my cupboard for a while, and it's funny because it's people really like it. Like every time I've played it, people have quite enjoyed it, but. There are just a few things about it that really, really bother me um, uh, from a design perspective. And I'm talking like actually from a design perspective in terms of like how it's built, not even just like the, the actual core of how the game works. But I'm interested to know what you think about it. Well, uh, I first heard about it through, I think, some chat with Quinns that we had ages, ages, years ago. Uh, meant to play it, never did. I remember Quinn's saying that he found it kind of slightly imperfect and it sounded like it was the way he described it. Also, it sounded like it was, for a lot of people, it was one of their first board games. So they had a lot mm. of love for it because it was, you know, it was not Monopoly. It was uh, some element of bluffing and deception and something social. And they thought, mm. oh, board mm. games can be so much better. Yeah, for for people at home who, who uh, let this monster piece slip them by, uh, it's... One of the all-time classics of the traitor of having a traitor somewhere uh, on someone on your ship may or may not be a Cylon. Yeah, or possibly more than one. Possibly more than one, and excellently halfway through the game, you receive another round of roll cards. So if the Cylon wasn't dealt in the first half of the game, it might suddenly you'll be a sleeper agent and you'll wake up and remember that you're a Cylon in the second half. And that's what I like most about that game, though. Actually, is the fact that you can, um, you know, that at some point there will be. You don't get that kind of damp squib of an ending of being like, oh. We were all at each other's throats the whole time and there wasn't even a traitor. You think that's a damn script? I think that's fantastic. I think that can be good. I think that's fantastic. I like the way that there is always one coming and it might just be this fact of like maybe at the second half of the game there'll be loads of Cylons but this idea that it's it's more that I guess it works the other way around rather than it being like oh maybe there aren't any now. It's, It's this thing of like it means that you can have half a game where things are subtly going wrong in very slight ways, but you can manage to, as a Cylon, convince everyone that, no, yeah. there probably aren't any now. They'll probably be coming in the second half, so we've got to work together now before they come, when actually you're already there and you're already messing things up in really subtle ways. Oh, the excellent tiny mechanic as well, uh, that if you play Gaius Baltar, who is famously the show's weedy and intensely corrupt scientist, um, you receive three roll cards rather than two, or is it two rather than one? Yeah. So uh, so even if you aren't a Cylon, people will believe you are twice as likely to be one. And so you just get a hard time from everybody. Who were you, Paul? Uh, I was the president, Laura Roslin. Congratulations on your presidency. What did you, did you blow up? Did you deploy any nukes? I didn't. I seemed to help deploying a lot of Vipers. That seemed to happen a lot. And then uh, dish out cards that helped Vipers not explode, if I remember. There was a lot going on with Vipers and the other spaceships. Uh, this is the interesting thing is it's um it's kind of it ends up playing as if you're playing through a campaign each time because one of the smart things about it is the way that you have to basically have all these events that occur um and part of what happens is every time you jump because the idea is like if you haven't seen the TV show it's this idea of the human humans are just running away from the robots yeah. and they're doing that by just firing up the jump engines and then letting them recharge and as soon as they're ready. And it's actually like, 
as the thing is, so much of my love for this game, I think, is because I love the series. Mm. Well, I love what the series was at the beginning, anyway. Um, and at the beginning, it's very much this thing of just before the warp drives are ready to go again, all of the aliens turn up and they're just being chased by this incredibly large fleet, and then they jump again. And it's always this like skin of your teeth thing of being like, you're just about to die, and then you run away. But then the idea of being like, but then it might be quiet for a little while, but then they'll catch up with you, and then you've got to go. <laughs> well, this, and, is, um, this is what I like the most about it, is uh, it, the, the game had a kind of a sense of momentum. There is always something new to do. Uh, there is a new challenge every round, and everyone has to pitch in with whatever limited resources you have from these hidden cards in your hand. So hopefully you're being helpful by playing the helpful cards. But a lot of the time it was the same things that kept coming up. It, it just kept being like, oh, you've run out of water again. Mm. I've run out of water again? Okay. I mean, again? it definitely sort of cracks at the seams uh, a fair bit. And it's interesting how the, they've released, I think, three now huge big box expansions for it because it's sold so much and people love it so much that tend to simulate different series of the TV show. But it's so weird that they try and solve things. Like, for example, when Cylons reveal themselves, they have a very boring time. Like, all of the, the sort of air holding up the game just goes out and the game deflates. So they yeah. try and fix that with an expansion and then, you know, but you have so much extra stuff and then the game's weighed down by something else. It's like it's like watching a kind of, you know, those um, MIT robots that walk, but not in quite a human way, very oh awkwardly. You know, it's that. Yeah, it's me. weird. I, I, as much as I do enjoy the base game, I've, I've never been tempted by any of the expansions just because it feels like there are real imperfections with the structure of how it works. And that's the doorbell. So I'm just going to get that and come back. I'm gonna, It's Galactica com- Actual. Can we keep this rolling? It's Galactica Actual delivering a, probably a board game, let's be honest. So but yeah, here's, here's a question for you. I mean, the, yeah, the expansions all kind of look interesting, but enormous. Do you think it would work better if they were sort of all distilled into a second edition? And uh, Yeah, I oh, that would be fantastic. All the best ideas from the expansion, you know, expansions turned into one edition. That would be huge. God, Ooh. I can't believe that's never occurred to me. But yeah, it's, uh, I don't know, it's... When you play Battlestar Galactica, it's fundamentally a really cool guessing game of who are the Cylons and then, oh, let's deploy some raptors and oh, let's jump. And I would call those like the three big beats of the series. Yeah. And yet the game has so many extra rules around that. And the expansions are, I think, not appealing to so many people because they're like, really? You want to add more rules to this game? Is not that- what it needs. Sorry about that. That was the quiche police. Um, but I think I, I think I got rid of them. It's yeah. fine. What did yeah, you then- say? I just said, no, no, officer, no cheese and eggs and pastry going on here. I don't know what you've heard. Because you've, you've got they're... just a bit on your just on your chin. We'll just have to keep the voices down a little bit because I'm a bit worried about my neighbours and I think they might have... Uh, yeah, no, let's just keep it down. We should be fine. Um, but, you know, I think my biggest problem, actually, for, for a game which is supposed to be a traitor game and it's something now which has become such a consistent staple of all games like this now is just having little reference cards in front of you like I've probably mentioned this on podcast a few times now but it really winds me up so much that it just sort of says oh yeah like the rooms on the ship do different things but then the text is on the rooms in very small text that can only be read if you're on that side of the board and often other players have their characters on those spaces which means you have to say can you just lift your uh, character up from the brig why? Oh no! Reason I just I just wonder what the text is. It's like it's the most unbelievably awful thing. And actually, the games I've played, which have been the most successful for the Cylons, have actually been because they've just been lucky. Like one of the games um, with my friend Laurie, where he was a Cylon, he was like the super pilot dude. I can't remember the guy who turns chubby. Um, <laughs> uh, Apollo, oh, Ado- Leo, yeah, Apollo, yeah, Fat Apollo. Um, he was Apollo, and. 
basically he just got shot down immediately at the start and then he was in like the hospital for a while and that was great for him because it meant that our star kind of fighter pilot we needed him out there killing Cylons but he was like oh I'm not well I can't do it (laughs) and so when you have like characters that have like misfortune and everyone's going oh no it's like you're quietly going this is brilliant and I like that but it does feel like if you're actually trying to be Machiavellian about something and trying to just prepare your thing it's kind of hard to do it because you don't have a way of you know accessing all the information in a clean simple way Mm. I also had a thing actually speaking of everyone's special role being the president I spent most of my time walking about in my president ship because it was the most useful place for me to be that is I didn't cool. have any desire to go anywhere else to do anything else. And it was mechanically, functionally fine, but I, there's this whole board and I kind of didn't touch most of it. Yeah, there's so many rules in that game to do with uh, just providing something that is accurate for the series. Like even, But even being accurate of parts of the series that are quite boring, like when you arrive on a planet and then you're just on the planet for a while. Why in a game that has amazing space combat? It's just no It's need. kind of strange. And I think it's one of those things now that um, it was kind of quite iconic at the time and there wasn't much like it really. But now how you've got stuff like, you know, Dead of Winter, which effectively yeah. feels like a kind of just this taken everything good about it and then just improved all the stuff that was mm-hmm. bad. Mm-hmm. As much as I like Battlestar Galactica, it's just, yeah. As you guys were saying, I think if they, if they kind of made a re-release, like a new version, which was kind of up to date and a bit trimmed down and just a bit smarter... I might be interested in it, but it's a very big box to begin with. I don't want more boxes. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Tell you what second edition that Fantasy Flight have done that I really liked recently. Oh. I, I just I just put up my impressions of the second edition of the new Game of Thrones card game. Oh, yeah. yeah. The, the collectible Netrunner alike with all the expansions and it's oh you can play a card and it's Jamie Lannister and as yeah. he goes into fights, oh, he gets renown. It's good. You can, you can push a dog out of a window. Well, can't you? You can have multiple of those people in your deck. Uh, you can, and the way that it works is, uh, you've probably asked me, not intentionally, but you've asked me a question with a very boring answer, which is, yeah, <laughs> you can have multiple copies of, for example, Tyrion in your deck, uh, nice dwarf, uh, played by, uh, the guy, played by the robot from Destiny is what I was gonna say, a Peter yeah. Dinklage, there you go. The Dinklebot. Um, yes, so, uh, you can have multiple copies of Peter Dinklage in your deck. And then the first time he shows up, you can pay gold and deploy him onto the board. But then future copies of Peter Dinklage, um, you play for free and they go underneath the existing Peter Dinklage and um, then they represent extra lives for him. But he doesn't even look like Peter Dinklage in this version. Well, you know, this is interesting because the TV series is so big now that some of the characters, you look at the art they've commissioned for the card game and it's like, you look a bit like... Like Littlefinger looks exactly like, I forget the actor's name, the guy who can't do an Irish accent. I don't think any of them looked exactly like. I thought some of them looked vaguely... Yeah, no, he looks kind of inspired by the actor. But mostly I actually think it's really interesting to have these characters you know and love and probably have mental images of you know, if you pictured in a different uh, light, like uh, Tywin Lannister, the the sinister patriarch of the Lannisters, he's no longer like a skinny rake in the in the art of the card game. He's like a big dude with huge golden mutton chops, which almost looks like a lion's mane. It's really nice. It is kind it's of amazing, cool. actually, to see the the different uh, interpretations of them and forget that a TV series is just one version and that you know, in in the game, for example, Stannis has no hair and quite a big beard. Uh, I had an interesting time in the fact that I read the first book and then watched... No, I watched the first TV s- series and then I read the first, read all the books. And so it meant that when I was reading the books, 
all of the characters that were in the first series looked exactly like that in my head, but yeah. then all of the new ones, when they started carrying on TV series, I'm like, they don't look like that. Oh like, man, do you guys know about the um, the TV series box of the Game of Thrones card game that they're releasing? No. no. Oh, this is, this is nuts. So alongside the Game of Thrones second edition piece, which people can see on shutupandsitdown.com if they want to read my impressions of it, because it's great. And if you're looking for a collectible card game to get into, holy shit, this is awesome. And there's only one set right now, no expansions yet, so very cheap. Um, but in addition to this, with all the new art, they're releasing a side box, which is all the art from the TV series. So if there's an actor from the TV series, then he is, you know, th- that card still exists, the rules are the same. It's an identical box, the only difference is Ooh. all the art and the layout for the cards is a lot more grim, real, and then it's pictures of actors Ooh. on the cards. So you can play that, kind of get into the rules of the card game, and if you really want to get into it, then you can buy the other set and then buy all the expansions, which will have the hand-drawn Ooh. art. So you could just buy the, the thing for the... All the Stephen Delane Stannis, did, and yes, just and make then, a deck that is just that card, and just play. I'm that. guessing if you really like any of the actors as well, Over. I would assume that the card backs are the same. So if you want to have copies of like the actual actor, who I'm plays not interested Stannis, in the back of the cards, frankly. <laughs> Can you get a deck that's just 100 percent Bron uh, in different poses? Oh, Bron, oh Bron, the mercenary guy. Yeah, oh, I haven't seen a Bron card. Bron on the Ooh. beach. Oh, well, Bron actually, on a horse. <laughs> just Bron having a nice time I love Bron. oh man the funniest is um, Sansa's ability which is so cinematic. Sansa Stark famous hostage of the TV series um, her power she's not very good she's not very useful she's kind of useful for power struggles a little bit not for fighting not for intrigue but um, you know in Magic the Gathering in games when you use a card it turns 90 degrees which is uh, you know you tap it in magic terminology mm-hmm. um, in Game of Thrones you have that but it's called kneeling because tapping is copyrighted so everything needs to come up with its own term um, so you, Sansa gives you a victory point whenever she stands back up again. So you kind of need to use her. So she's constantly doing these like really crap power struggles because she, her stats aren't great. But it's when she stands up, the fact that she's still there, she survives, still alive. <laughs> oh, I like gets you victory points. It's, That's it's, really nice. Yeah, Here's another great. question: Is there a Hodor card, and does it just say Hodor? Not in the base set. Oh. You can tell that, because I remember actually looking through these cards uh, when we were in Gen Con. Right at the end of the trip, we were just sort of, um, I had this massive suitcase of things to take home and pour over. And I was incredibly tired and losing my marbles a little bit. It was bit. like 8am. We'd just woken mm. up, but neither of us, because we were jet-lagged, were able to leave our respective beds. So yeah. we were just looking through cards. So we just, you were beds. looking through your Netrunner cards and going, oh my God, because you just discovered something new that was amazing somehow, yep. but had no way of explaining to me whatever you were talking about. <laughs> yeah. So I'd just go, what? And you go... Oh, nothing. I think it was longer no. than that. You'd go, what? And I'd rack my brain for a way to express it to you. So I'd be like, ah, but, but, uh, uh, never mind. It's a Netrunner thing, isn't it? Yeah, but um, <laughs> I found it interesting in the fact that I have a basic understanding of card games. But just looking through the deck of what you got in this, I found it really intriguing because I was just like, I had no idea how the game was played. Usually when you look through all the cards, you get a sense of like how the game is. But I really like the variety of stuff on play. Like the fact that, you know, some of the decks like were really grim and... Like, oh, yeah, clearly lots of fighting. But then, like, um, what they call the bloody flower people? Oh, uh, Tyrells. The Tyrells, yeah. The Tyrells <laughs> are, like, all their all of their cards were, like, kind of people, like, listening to other people in gardens and stuff. <laughs> and it, was, it was just, like, yeah, because they're not really, well, in the timeline of Game of Thrones, they're not really war people. Oh, man, the funniest is um, all the Martell's special power. Martell meaning the sort of Moroccan-looking people who are mostly forgotten about in the TV series. Yes. It's, it's the house where you're like, oh, yeah, the Martell's. Um, it's really funny because their deck's ability, their, well, their superpowers, they get they have cards that trigger when you lose a fight. 
So you kind of lose fights, lose fights, lose fights, and you're getting benefits, 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 and then they have cards that essentially become are become exponentially stronger the later in the game you play them. So Martel's thing is like, we're Martel, and everyone goes, we don't care. And then they turn up and they call And then I, basically their deck's power seems to revolve around the fact that I would guess in the forthcoming season of Game of Thrones in the next few books, Martel are going to turn out to be real power players. But in the game, their deck's thing is like, oh, we're fine, we're fine, we're fine. Hey, we're here, and we've won the game. <laughs> wow! So yeah, and you were saying about how the Night's Watch just do this thing of just oh, the being... Night's the Night's Watch is one of the new factions <laughs> in Second Edition. It's so funny they uh, they have a card called the Wall, and then once they once you actually get that on the table, it's preposterous because uh, you essentially get to what a what amount to victory points every single turn, so long as you defend against every single attack that comes your way. So like ordinarily in Game of Thrones, someone can attack you, and you're like, oh, I won't bother to block. In this, if the Night's Watch block all the time, if they hold the Wall. They just generate victory points constantly. But it means that in doing that, they just sacrifice themselves constantly. Yep. And then they have cards. They're the only faction with cards that trigger when this unit... So when this card dies, do this. So it's Night's Watchmen. You're putting down, then they die. You put more down, and they die. It's very cool. It's a real, it's a really like taster set. I mean, uh, looking through the amount of cards you get for each faction, you don't actually get very many. Do you? But it's no, because there's eight a, factions. Yeah, I know, but it's it's nice. It's just one of those things where it's like kind of it's very much feels like a in the same way the X Wing the base set was kind of like mm. this taster. It's like yeah. you have a play with it and you go, this is cool, but it won't really kind of come into work. Yeah, until okay. you want to buy a little there. more. They uh, there's a site uh, and a shop in Tulsa, Oklahoma, who I really like called Team Covenant, and they make custom Netrunner tokens and they do some um, they do the best commentary videos on collectible card games. They're really really they work closely with Fantasy Flight. And they have a great marketing line on it, which is whenever a, a box isn't quite enough to play with, like it's not the case in the Game of Thrones Second Edition, mm-hmm. their line is, um, well, you need one box to fall in love, and then you need a second box to uh, to, to be competitive. So it's like, it's, you don't have to buy two sets. So is it, is it the love? same with this then? Is it pretty much like the... Because, the, I mean, you know... Um, I was actually going to take that box home and have a play with it, but I didn't have a big enough suitcase. Mm. So, uh, what a shame! I got to play with it. First. So you got to play with it first, but then I'm I'm kind of even thinking now is like, well, is it the sort of thing where if I get a box of it myself, that I won't really? It's the sort of thing if you play it and go, oh, this is cool, but then you can't really do any more until there are expansions out. No, you can um you can make some competitive decks right now technically by buying three copies of the core set. <laughs> uh, oh wow. Wait, it's, oh, world we live in. Look, uh, I'm going to try and defend this. I mean, the other thing you can do, and this is what I was suggesting, you don't really need three, you kind of need two is fine. Two would do you. Um, but the interesting thing is, because there are eight factions, if, and this is what I did when I first got into Netrunner before I went off the deep end and never returned, is um, you and a friend both buy one core set each. And then, and then you bits, say, okay, yeah. I want the Martells and the Lannisters. And then you just take all of those corresponding cards. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what I've been doing with, uh, with X-Wing. I've yeah. been uh, actually kind of got to the point where I've been playing... Uh, more of that. I got my Y wing and my A wing, and, and started playing around. Where you've got more of the the Y wing, the Volvo of deep space. It's pretty great. The Y wing. I mean, it had some fairly spectacular things. I had a chap in it that meant that every time after he'd done a very rough maneuver, <laughs> he'd suddenly like he'd like try and do something outrageous. But rather than that being a bad thing, it was like after he'd just done a cool turn, he would then like do more damage and stuff and be really dangerous. Oh, that's nice. So it was this cool thing of him just. Turning up in the battle, doing like a handbrake turn and firing a rocket, <laughs> and, up someone, and then turning to the camera, winking. It's like it was really, it's really good. But it is again, it's that tricky thing. We bought two starter packs, split the bits off, and now the weird thing I found about X Wing is how it's not actually about the figurines; it's about the cards you get with yeah, them, yeah. and the fact that you have to go research online because mm. you can buy like you can buy an X Wing in a blister pack, 
and then be like, oh no, that's rubbish. But then you can go and buy a different X-Wing in a blister pack and be like, oh, that's really good. Yeah. Well, that- this is why they have QR codes, Matthew, because of course in your daily life you use QR codes a lot, am I right? <laughs> so um, they have a QR code on the back of all the packs, but you can scan that on your phone. And see I'm making myself laugh as I said this, but it's quite clever. You can is, see all the cards that are inside. That is very useful. I mean, it was fine on the internet, but it just means that I went back with a, a full thing. But it's it's a very enjoyable game. But it's funny how like it's X Wing is still one of those games where like it's not even just about having two starter sets. It's like you need to both invest about yeah. like about forty. 40, 50 quid yeah, and both that, that, each. That gets you. That gets you a decent set. But that's you yeah, know, it's a, it's a game you're meant to collect. It's it's like, and they are lovely figurines. You want to spend forty quid on it. It's just a case of if you have that forty quid. Speaking of which, Paul, do you so like? Come on, me and Matt, mm-hmm. we're, we're playing X Wing and we're playing Netrunner and we're going to tournaments and we're organising tournaments. Is Game of Thrones a card game you might consider getting into seriously? Because I got to tell you, man, deck building is so much fun once you've uh, once you've sort of broken the seal and made your first couple of decks. Oh my goodness, peer pressure. Uh, you know what? Let's see. <laughs> let's see if I can give it a go really uh, yeah you think- well you know what let's see what i let's i've got to find people to play it with but i, I um, think you'll have no shortage of people in vancouver to play game of thrones second edition it's so good and it's just come out and but if you all start playing at the same time then you all have those matching skill levels that's and you true could be like, oh you pesky uh you know uh lannisters lannisters well i'm just gonna make a, a deck of uh baratheon people and oh look, yeah just I'll- look at it Oh, actually, Stannis Baratheon has the most amazing, uh, again, thematic power. Which of course is, he does. Um, obviously, Stannis, secret best character in Game of Thrones. Um, but his thing is that he can make it so that once he's on the table, all the players can only sort of... Like I said, you, you kneel when you spend a character, right? Yeah. So you can only stand up three characters each. So the idea that Stannis is so inflexible that he plays by these awful rules and the opponents have to play by the same rules when he's around. Oh, which that- is. That is thematic. The wall rule that you described is kind of thematic. I mean, that's that's actually quite clever game design as well. It it absolutely is. They've they've knocked the pairing of theme and characters out of the. Pack. I'm looking forward to playing. I might get myself a, a pack. And do you want to do, do you want to split cards? Uh, can do. Or do you want multiple boxes? I don't even. I don't know, man. We'll work it you out. Don't know if you're. You, you maybe not going to do it because you've got Netrunner. I've got Netrunner for Infinity. We'll talk a bit about yeah. Infinity in the next podcast. Oh, Infinity. Uh, Infinibles. Yeah, we'll come back to that next podcast, I think. But uh, no, yeah. I mean, the thing is, yeah, I like these ideas, but it's hard for me to find the, the time, time and people to play with these. But things. you know, Game of Thrones, unlike Netrunner, you can with Netrunner you play it once and you're like, oh, I think I get why maybe that in the future this will possibly be a good game. But with Game of Thrones, you play it once and you go, that's fun. So it's way, way lower pressure. That's good. It's more like X Wing in that respect. Ooh. That's good. Okay. Actually, well, yeah, I might check it out. Okay. At that point, I think we're going to do a sexy cutaway. Uh, so recently what? at the UK board at the UK board games expo, this Cut, is a, a cutaway is a type of edit, Paul. You don't have to take your clothes off. <laughs> I'm, tra- I'm trying to sort of rise, raise, raise, th- rise th- excitement. I was worried that you were going to try and take your clothes off with a pair of scissors. It wouldn't but... be the first time. Okay, that's why they okay. did have to All sew right. them. No, sew I'll, I'll just them. I'll put the scissors down. I was recently at the <laughs> at the UK board games expo and. Uh, I caught up with Mr. Eric Lang, designer of such fabulous board games as the XCOM board game and more recently Blood Rage, a beautiful looking Cool Me cool Mini or Not title. So here are some uh, condensed, it's a condensed version, it's not the whole thing, but uh, I think you'll agree Mr. Lang is a very interesting person. How did you get your start within, uh, within board games? How do you uh, get your start as a designer is a better word. So, uh, yeah, I've got, this one is enough that I got it down to Reader's Digest version. I've been playing games since I was eight with my grandmother in Germany mm-hmm. and uh, became a gamer after I discovered Stratego at nine years old. Um, became a lifestyle gamer at uh, when I was 23 when I played D&D 2nd Edition. And when Magic the Gathering hit, 
uh, in 93, right, I decided that that was what I was going to do for a living. And I, I rearranged my entire life uh, in order to be able to do this. Like those, I was single-minded and focused on that goal. Okay. So I, choose, I chose where I was going to live based on how close I was to playtesters. Um, I took a job at a retail store so I could learn about the retail side of it. I ran events. I ran Pokemon tournaments to learn about the event running side. I uh, worked at Nintendo retail to learn about the, the big... Uh, the big corporate side of it and just basically just was young and stupid and just hang uh, hung out like boldly with every major company I could at the time and I forged a good relationship with Fantasy Flight based on that why 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 did you change your whole life to do all this uh, so um, I don't want to I don't want to use a term as pretentious as a calling but that's really that's what it feels like to me like when um, so almost all good things in my life are somehow connected to D&D, right? Uh, I was like a lot of gamers. I was a, I was a bit of a loner, a, um, a bit of a loner, a really shy kid. I didn't have a lot of friends. I had some friends, but not a lot. Uh, but I was introduced to gaming and the gamer culture uh, in 98. Um, and I'm, all the friends that I still have today come from that point in my life. And it's, it was, you know, it's a very inclusive, very in general, right? Never mind the Know, hashtag thing yeah. but um it's it is it's generally very inclusive very open um very friendly and supportive group and that's um it's so it like it is more than just a profession it is a lifestyle uh so and i've always been a creative guy like I've, you know when when i was young i got once into music i wanted to make uh i wanted to write songs right i just i wanted to do the thing that i loved so um there's just I hit when D and D hit and when Magic hit I was I couldn't imagine doing anything else. I took other jobs and they just didn't. They felt like slavery or like they they did. They felt awful. I'm glad I did them, but they didn't feel right. Mm -hmm. Right until I was gaming and I was with when I was working on games. I could work 13, 14 hour days and it didn't feel like work at all. It felt like I was just doing what I was supposed to do. Okay, so talking about slavery, there's something that I found. <laughs> Wow, I didn't even, that was an amazing, unintentional, awful, no. That's I, awesome. No, what I meant. <laughs> let's talk about, let's talk about, so, no. Um, <laughs> so, when I look at designing board games, because like some, because I talk about them for my job, like people are often asking, like, when are you going to design one? And my answer is always like, never, because it's, it's way too hard. And like, as far as the hard work goes, mm -hmm. like I do a lot of creative stuff in my life, you know, like I, I write a lot and I produce videos and, and like, you know, I do talks and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. That to me feels like a very easy process for, I have an idea and I produce the idea and I create it. And the thing that scares me away from board games that I would like to know how you get around it, or if this isn't a problem for you at all, is the process of endless iteration, of, of creating an idea and then having to subject some people to it when it's not necessarily entertaining. And then it's like, that to me is like, you know, you're at the, you're at the coal face, you know? You're just mm -hmm. trying to scratch something fun out of an idea. And that to me never struck, like, obviously it's, it's, a, it's a hugely creative process, but that's something that scares the hell out of me, you know? like Because it, it is scary. It is. Um, so... The way I think of it is um, I generally try to refine an idea to make sure at the very least, out of respect for my playtester's time, uh, I try to make sure that it is both that is both fun, rudimentary, rudimentarily fun. That's I coined that today <laughs> um, and playable. Right. So uh, I do. I've gotten to, I play a lot of games with myself right at this point just to make sure that they get to that point. Mm -hmm. um, I get it to the table quickly and I play with myself or I play with my wife. Uh, and then, um, 
then we will. Um, oh, she loves that, by the way. The, I was going to say, I was reminded of the uh, the scientist who <laughs> was it. He was like trying to learn about pressure, and he would put his wife in this like airtight container. And said, uh, Luckily, no bodily harm comes to any of my loved ones for okay. this. <laughs> but, um, but so I will like I will make sure that the game is at least. This jar was outside. They tried pickpocketing me. Yeah, it was tried a, to steal my coffee. It was it was charming. It was it was, and I gave them some invisible money, and they gave me the finger. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um. So, uh, yeah. So I make sure that it is at least at at least at a certain level. It's not perfect of course not even close but it is at least the nugget is there and i make sure i carefully select playtesters uh, for the early portions of the game to make sure that they are people who appreciate the um who appreciate the emergent qualities of iterative design and i do iterate quickly right i've developed and I, I design almost entirely by instinct in the first part of the game like during the first portion of the game the first the easy 80 percent i'm doing air quotes um so, like, very often I will play a game and I will iterate it right there on the spot, right? It's like, oh, we're not having fun. Let's stop one second. Yeah. Have some cake. All right, now have fun. <laughs> In my limited experience of, um, of, of board game design, that struck, like, within, like, the, the professional sphere, mm -hmm. um, that struck me as incredibly important, where you're playing a game and immediately you know, what's wrong? Maybe this idea, and then you just, okay, these, these orcs are now rocks, and they don't right. move, and they're just obstacles, and then does this work? And it, it's, it's a... An amount of creative flexibility, you know, absolutely, required. which is interesting because then suddenly it becomes a creative endeavor where you're not necessarily like creating, you're trying to identify what's on the table and what is fun, like yep. what is happening here. But then it's not that you lose um, ownership of that, but it's, it's almost like this it is, is a it is democratic, absolutely, mm. absolutely. So, like, so again, I'm trying to avoid sort of pretentious speak, but for there's a lot, there's you can get if there's anywhere that you can get pretentious. All right. Well, but like the the a big part of the design really is like uh, well because I was about to compare myself to Michelangelo. I was about is, to do the same thing. Right? with the, uh, the, the statue underneath the marble. You've got right? to find it. You yeah. have to find it. And well, so the thing is, in a lot of ways, uh, when I'm making a game, if uh, if a significant portion of the game, like which if to put an arbitrary number on it, twenty five to thirty percent of the game doesn't write itself. If there's no natural flow to from beginning to end, then I probably don't want to do the game because mm -hmm. there because that means I'm actually fighting against nature, and like games are. I mean, play is natural; it's as natural as you get. And so, if the, if players have to fight the game, then it's not. It's generally not fun, mm -hmm. right? Generally, uh, unless that's the point of the game, in which I've done some of those too. <laughs> but yeah, so um, the. Um, I've actually lost my train of thought. Uh, you were talking about how it, it's a democratic process. And uh, right. Yeah, sorry. It's a, it's a democratic process. And uh, the game should almost write itself because you should be able to identify what's fun and follow that thread. Right. At least the core of it, right? So, um, and because of that, I don't I don't actually think in terms of mechanics, like a lot of um, mechanisms, as other people call it, like as like they're just tools, right? I, think, I do think in terms of play patterns, right? So when I, usually when I'm starting a game, I think... Um, in my head, I'm, I'm watching players play, right? I don't even know what the rules are yet, but I'm, look, I'm seeing them at the table. Like, what are they doing? What are they arguing about? What what's are they their, having the most fun doing? What's their body language, right? Why are they arguing? What's the conflict? Where's the drama, right? Um, I, I, took, uh, I took screenwriting uh, vicariously through my younger brother when I was... Uh, uh, while he was in school, and a lot of the same lessons apply, right? Like, you, where is the drama, right? Where's the drama? How is it heightened, right? Um, put the players in the tree, throw rocks at them, let them <laughs> down, right? Yeah, okay. The, 
Oh, what was I going to say? Oh, yeah. But the um, you say this right that you you know you want to get it to the table as early as possible. But your games suck. But they're awful. <laughs> and, no, but um, I think about XCOM and I think about Quarriers, and mm-hmm. those are like the whole entertaining thing. Quarriers is assembling like the uh, you know these amazing little plastic nuggets, mm-hmm. and you can't do that at an early prototyping phase, right? So for me, the central appeal in Quarriers wouldn't have been present during early prototyping. So funnily enough, um, it so. You're right that they, the Quarriers didn't look like candy when we first started, but we got it to the table. Um, this was a co-design with Mike Elliott, and we we designed the um, the easy fifty percent of it, like what the game, what the general game was going to be about, over the phone. Like we had a phone conversation. He phoned me and said, uh, he said, I remember this uh, exact words. It was like, what do you think about Dominion with dice? Mm-hmm. I was like. Yes, <laughs> yes, I yes I do. Yes, um, and we and I mean we started there. We didn't end up there, but we started there, and we um, and we discussed that over. We we just had this really cool debate over the phone, and both of us independently. Just I mean I have a ton of little D sixes in my house. I just took a bunch of them. I put stickers on them, and we played, and I would play it in, in about an hour. And so yes, they didn't look like candy, but the appeal, like the visceral appeal, and the and the haptic appeal was there already. Mm-hmm. Well, and then with XCOM, of course, like the uh, what was the heart of that game then? Because obviously you didn't have an app. XCOM was interesting. So XCOM, I um, so I'm a big, big, big fan of the West Wing television show. It's one of my favorite shows on TV. Yeah, yeah I love. Sure, um, so my my vision for that um, crystallized pretty quickly. I'm I'm a big fan of XCOM, so I knew what I, I um, and I was I'm a big fan of the geoscape of XCOM. Mm-hmm. And I kind of knew what I wanted to do already beforehand, what, what kind of game I wanted to do. But, but the vision I had was actually a scene from the West Wing uh, in one of the la- later seasons where, um, the, uh, where the, uh, one of the ministers of defense and the um, uh, chief of staff were fighting, were having this moral debate over whether they needed to assassinate uh, a, a diplomat who is a known harbinger of, ter- uh, harbinger, harbor of terrorists. And that they were sweating and they were arguing they were both on the same side they're playing for the same team but they were arguing and they were like they were arguing like life and death right and i was like you know what i want to make a game that puts people in that room right be in this room and under like when you're in that room and like you're sweating you're arguing with each other and you're (laughs) like we're all in the same cause but you're wrong yeah (laughs) right I wanted to make that game and funnily enough there was a part of me that when I was working on this I was like I don't even care if this is fun (laughs) (laughs) Um, because what's fun right Right. Um, I mean fun in general is a word that is like it holds games I mean games is a word that holds games back right um, so uh, yeah, we. One of the things that I love about working with Fantasy Flight, especially in the with XCOM. So I had this, the, I had this vision clear in my head, right? And all I had to do was chip at the stone until I found that. The, so you're asking about the. So like, how did I find the nugget of like, how did I get this to the table quickly? Yeah, sure. Right? And I mean, I, was the real time element there? I mean, it was. The app wasn't there. It the, wasn't right away. But so here's the the thing. We actually, this is one of the exceptions to the rule. I didn't. I it was because um, we knew right away there was no portion of XCOM development where we were not going to do an integrated app. It was part of the original conversation. Um, and this is one of the games where I was like, I hard and fast rule. I was like, we're not going to play a single round of this game until we have a very rudimentary gray box app. And so I worked with uh, two developers at Fantasy Flight, one of them which was an excellent Unity um, uh, coder. And so we sat, I sat there and like, like you know, I, I gave her some, um, some basic instructions and we're like, let's start with a timer. 
-hmm. right? We're going to start with a time with a semi-smart timer that jumbles phases around. Mm. We'll start there. And now we're going to argue, right? And I, <laughs> and literally, I was designing the game as the timer was running. Wow! Right, and it was uh, it was really cool. And that, I, that, it's such a good idea. It's really strong. Like, um, yeah. Now there is a version of that game that's not seeing press that uh, that won't see print. That I, I did. I went and I took a detour for a little bit and tried to um, uh, and went in one direction that um, the uh, Chris Peterson actually didn't agree with. And in retrospect, I'm glad he didn't because it wasn't correct. But based on that little detour, I was like, I'm going to make another game based on that particular detour. Okay, so how long have you been working in games uh, so far now? Uh, well, so the metric I'm using is how uh, I've used, I've written Game Designer on my tax return since 97. <laughs> since 97, okay. So that's... 17 years? 17, 18 years. So where are you at now compared to uh, the... The guy who threw his whole life away to to, to <laughs> threw to, his to, life away to, to, on a gamble of like being able to do this and think this is what I want to do right and then it obviously paid off because you're clearly very talented right well it took doing. it took five years right it was five, five years, years of um, I mean five years of, I was working at game stores and stuff like that but I consider that all part of the process mm -hmm. right I learned more from I learned more from working at a game store I think than I would have learned from a four year college course absolutely yeah um, so where am I now so. Uh, if you would have asked me this a year ago, I would have said like I'm I'm comfortable, I'm happy, I'm you know I feel all unbelievably blessed. I'm making a good living making what were games. Your first few products. Uh, the first few things I did were uh, the uh, tra blah, trading card games, uh, Game of Thrones and Call of Cthulhu. Okay. Um, also worked on the World of Warcraft board game. Oh yes, that um, the old legend which now I can't buy. <laughs> like... uh, maybe not necessarily a bad thing. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> did I say that out loud? Um, <laughs> Um, I worked on Bakugan for uh, Spin Masters, uh, like that. So I did, I did a bunch of stuff at that period. But um, so I would a year ago, I was like, I was, I was been like, I'm really comfortable. Um, and so because of that, uh, that actually bothered me. That started really, really bothering me. Okay. Um, and so actually, last year, uh, I I was so comfortable, I was a little bored. Right. Um, I hit a point that I never wanted to hit, like consciously never wanted to hit, where I I had a new assignment. And I was like, okay, well, all right, I'm guessing I'm gonna make a game, and uh, here's my process. <laughs> right? And I was, and I, it took me five months to come up with nothing. It was crap, right? I couldn't even get something to the table because I was just, I, and it was, I was bored. Uh, and I was, uh, I was at the Essen Game Con Fair last year, uh, which is this big, huge game convention in Germany. And on the last day of the show, I always go look around at the game, different games and, you know, look for cool stuff. And I was just bored. I was looking at all these games like, eh, this is not really? bored. Yeah. And, was, and I mean, last year, we have never, ever in our history had a greater diversity of fun, interesting, innovative games. Uh -huh. So I was like, all right, that's the, the fact that I was bored is my problem. It's not the industry's problem. Um, so I took another drastic measure last year and I took every... Uh, I've accumulated, like all designers, I've accumulated a, a folder of hundreds of game ideas that, in progress and stuff like that. I was like, you know what? Uh, F this. <laughs> I'm gonna. I went to uh, went to my computer that night um, and destroyed every single prototype, every file for every game that I had in progress that was not under contract. Um, went home, destroyed every physical prototype without looking at it. Didn't never opened it because I knew if I did, I wouldn't want to do it. 
didn't open it, destroyed it, got rid of it on the, it's not on the cloud, it's not on my, um, it's not on Google anywhere, they're all gone, 100%. Um, I've never felt so liberated um, because, and so, and then, like, I did this instinctually, like, I've learned to trust my gut, right? Yeah. Um, I just did, I knew it was the right thing to do. And then, of course, I read up on it afterward because, you know, like, we're, I'm not that insane, right? <laughs> like, I'll do stuff by my gut and then go research why I did that, okay. right? Um, and it's like, yeah, there's actually, there's a psychological, ter- um, there's a psychological uh, f- uh, term for this. I don't remember what it is right now offhand, but you do actually pay, you pay a mental tax in bandwidth and um, and operational capacity for every unfinished creative idea that you have working at a time it 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 does eat at you and it does take cycles in the background um and especially like most of these things in the creative field like if if you're not finishing it you don't really care there's not there's nothing there's no spark there for you so by just ditching them and like mentally divorcing myself from them completely I wasn't worried about them anymore. I wasn't like, oh, that's like, I'm going to get back to that game one day. I got this another idea someday. It's like, I was like, you know what? If I'm not going to finish it, I'm not going to finish it. They're, they're dead to me. So since then, like on the plane ride home, I got three or four new, like brand new ideas for games that I've, there were nothing like I've ever done before. That's insane. Like, that's an incredible story. It's insane. Yes, you're right. It is insane. It's, but I, I, It's both but, of those things. So what, because this relates to, to what I do. Um, what was it that was this also getting in the way of you appreciating all the designs that absolutely so i'm having a lot more fun playing games again right um i I, I go out like i make a discipline every wednesday um that my my wife and i will go to the game store the local game store in toronto it's a great store um there's a group of gamers on meetup.com who put together a board game group and there's like 50 people every week they show up and play games I make sure that we go, even if we don't feel like it, we're comfortable, we're at home, we're eating our soup or whatever. Eating um, your soup. <laughs> eating our soup. <laughs> yeah, sure, I can, I, I can see it now. I'm in Britain, I don't know why I'm thinking, of, I'm sitting, I have this image of like being snuggled it's up in a brick. Okay, sure. <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, I, whether, whether we feel like it or not, we go. And every single time, without exception, when I get there and start playing games, I don't regret it. Like, I'm like, oh, I'm so glad we came. This mm-hmm. is a lot of fun. It reminds yeah, that's similar to how I feel with conventions because, like, conventions for us are such a like you're exhausted you get sick and then you can't really produce work so you're not working on the site exactly right and but then you get home and you're like oh my god book so many designs and and joy and 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 amazing stuff i think something that uh, a lot of uh, aspiring designers listening to this might find interesting is um the sheer quantity of prototypes you've got i think it's common in a lot of creative fields to have you know, you're focused on the one thing. It's like, this is my game and I'm working on it and it's the cones of Dutchshire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah, that's but, no good. But hearing you talk and then just like, here's an idea. Does it work? No, okay, here's a new idea. And that's the skill like that you need. Well, if you want to do this professionally, you absolutely must have, this is the minimum bar. This is not a recommendation. It's a minimum bar. You have to have more ideas than time to work on them. If you don't, you shouldn't be doing this professionally, right? Like it's, I mean, that, it sounds harsh, but it's absolutely, that, that's minimum bar before you even start thinking about making one of those. If you, cause you have to be able to abandon an idea you have to be able to, um, by, by only having one idea, yeah, you make Cones of Dunshire because you don't listen to anybody else when they say it sucks, right? Um, and you have to be able to put games away, right? Like most of my best designs were games that I was able to design for a little while, put away, reflect on them for a little while while I worked on something else, uh, come back to them, finish the last 20%. Uh, and it's always like, this is uh, publishers, don't be too scared, right? But most of my games, 
at the 11th hour, I will change something fundamental about it and just like destroy it, right? Completely destroy it and then rebuild it. Uh, and they're always better for it. Right, yeah, the board game scene does seem, in the ones, it's it's two things at once, right? It is so saturated. It is, you know, there's a gajillion Kickstarters every week that I look at mm -hmm. and, and often frown at. Yep. But then uh, but then simultaneously you come to a convention and it's possible to play something and it's almost like fresh fruit or something. It's right. like, oh, this idea, it's, it's perfect and it's new and it's it's amazing. Right. It's 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 everything at once. And it's growing as well. And it is growing uh, amazingly. So I, I, I do have a theory about that and... Um, it's actually I'm, I'm actually becoming a little more convinced by this that the the rise of um, this new generation of board game cafes, uh, Snakes and Lattes started in Toronto, and there's a there's one in most cities now. Um, this new type of board game cafe where the uh, it's a standard like Korean style board game cafe, except the staff is knowledgeable and the point of the game. Oh, these things originated. You'd find the earliest examples in Korea. Uh, well, of one point right? Where it's just they had board game cafes. You just go in and you play some games, mm. right? Uh, that was very popular in Korea, right? It started off with as Starcraft cafes, and then oh sure, uh, yeah, like uh, the PC bangs. And... Right, but then eventually they started carrying board games because oh, um, okay. they had they had a little culture there, um, and they still do. It just. Uh, but people just go and play themselves. But this new generation of, of cafes where the staff is knowledgeable and the staff is trained to lead people to games, right? Like, you know, they give you a little interview process and learn about you and then they find a game that's good for you. That That's something we haven't had before, right? We've always had retail stores that, you know, that destination locations that people know where to go they come in to play games yeah. these are places on main strips right that are turning people that are um, that are psychologically primed to play games mm. they're turning them into gamers they're giving them what I call the D&D &D moment right where they come in somebody will come into a game store this happens I see it every day anecdotally there are people that come into this game store right, and they, they think they come in they play Trivial Pursuit and stuff like that right, and they'll play Carcassonne and they're like holy shit game, I'm sorry <laughs> no like, no like, we, it's fine like, games can be this that's amazing yeah. right um, and you never forget that right it, for people um, the people who make the transition from casual from not even a casual from non-gamer to you know anywhere on the hobby anywhere on the spectrum of you know casual to midcore to hardcore whatever you want to call it and anywhere that they identify it as any part of their lifestyle the transition point is huge that was mr eric lang a man i met for the first time at gen con this year very lovely unassuming chap in fact it was a wonderfully kind of eccentric uh, moment where um he was showing us blood rage and we didn't have time to actually sit and play it but he was we were we were kind of gawping at the minis because they are actually really beautiful and also, like, really different in terms of scale. Like, some of them, some of the characters are just Vikings. And one of the characters is this giant sea monster. And I'm like, how come you get to be a giant sea monster? And the guy's like, oh, it's a drafting game. I just drafted that. And it's like, I like this idea of that if you want to, you can just decide that you want to have a character who's bloody massive and not just a boring small Viking. But anyway, this big sea monster had all these tendrils coming out of the back of his uh, head. And uh, Eric wanted to show us how that he was like oh yeah look how flexible they are like and clearly they'd already done this at the office but he shows how how durable they were so he just picked it up and just said oh is it all right because these guys were mid-game at the moment <laughs> so he just we didn't know these people he just picked it up on the table and said oh can i just borrow this for a second and they were like <laughs> they didn't really know they didn't know who eric was they didn't know that he designed the game so they were just like yeah okay and he immediately just throws it on the floor <laughs> and then oh no do you remember the uh, the cool men you're not guy was there he was going eric no no don't no yeah no. yeah yeah yeah. he's like eric no no and then eric's like look he throws the sea monster on the floor and then just starts standing on it and being like look look and just like <laughs> stepping on it with his foot to show that these kind of 
weird tendrils that looked very they did look very flaky and insubstantial but show that it wouldn't break and um yeah he just started going through all sorts of sort of durability tests live while these people who were playing a game sat patiently waiting for their sea monster back look, looking a bit bemused <laughs> he's, he's quite the gentleman uh, it was wonderful we've got to get him on some kind of video for something uh let's enter it's not i was gonna say let's enter our mailbag but that's unhealthy kids don't climb into bags you can suffocate and die uh, I've got an indirect question I was asked Oh yeah, no, let's go for that Somebody on Twitter today asked a question I thought, well, I, I'll think about that uh, They were asking about, because they were thinking about co-op games And obviously we talked a lot in the past about Pandemic probably being the best place to start yeah. um, And it still is, I think But it's also a game which is kind of like it, There are other options out there And actually he was saying that he went in asking about Flashpoint And somebody said, oh, Pandemic, actually And I think it's an interesting one, actually, in the fact that they are quite different. Um, so I think that if you are kind of torn between Pandemic and Flashpoint, it's, it's you kind of got to understand where what your what your kind of end game is with this, because Pandemic is incredibly fun and exciting the first few times you play it. But once you've cracked the puzzle, once you've worked out how the game works, it's kind of always the same, and the fun of playing it sort of disappears quite quickly. And that's not to say that the thing is you can expand that with the expansions um, and it's still a fantastic game. But Flashpoint has a bit of a different feel to it whilst like Pandemic is a kind of really elegant puzzle um, that once you've solved it, you're kind of done with it. Flashpoint is a bit more elaborate and a bit more kind of um, physical in the fact that you know, you're actually physically moving through this building and there are different um, scenarios. And also it's got a, a much bigger dollop of like random stuff going oh, on. Oh, yeah. Like, things can just get out of control and it kind of gets away with that because of this idea that it's a building on fire. Um, so I kind of feel that, like, whilst Pandemic is simpler and it's more immediately fun and it's definitely something if you're playing it with people who don't play board games at all, it's a much better way to try and get people into it. I kind of feel like Flashpoint, whilst it's a bit less elegant and a bit less kind of slick and well what like doesn't look as good i remember the characters in flashpoint in particular have really weird faces um (laughs) i I think um it maybe has more legs it maybe has kind of better longevity in terms of something that you can actually keep playing a bit more but um yeah it's good paul did you say you recently won your first game of flashpoint you yeah you successfully put out a fire you know for a game about fighting fires it's not like pandemic where you're racing around trying to save the world from plague which sounds quite hard the firefighters in flashpoint seem to very rarely put out fires i, I mean put them well, out without leveling the building yeah you um I, I i originally thought i was just really bad at it but friends have said no it's just, it is actually just really difficult but we i i've played i don't know quite a few games of it and it was the first game where we actually managed to get every single person out of the building and the building didn't collapse or or anything, which is remarkable because, as Matt says, it's a game where just you just roll dice to see where the next bit of fire starts, and it is a completely random thing in in that respect. Where every turn, something in the building just catches light, and then something else may explode, or there could be a flashover, and I mean, it's, <laughs> you you kind of just have no control, do you? That it's very possible that. Uh, you could have an awful turn and there's not actually a great deal you can do except... You, yeah, you can just have a moment where suddenly you roll the dice and the fire starts like on a kind of 
a box of chemicals Yuck. that's in the kitchen and then suddenly the kitchen explodes and the wall is gone and half of the living room is on fire. It is the funniest thing that in that game it, it's fairly common for you to like kick open the front door of the building, look in the living room and resting on the sofa is a tank of gasoline. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like an episode of 999 really. That's what I like about it. It's just like... And then at that point, we realised that it was a bad idea for the bedroom to be filled with dogs, children, and propane. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's it's awful in that way, but there's nothing you can do about it except run around and very judiciously sort of tinkle a bit of water on a a bit of fire in a place. Because I don't feel that effective as a firefighter in it. I I think a lot of it is about running in, grabbing someone, and running out really quickly. What games were you... Or that kind of gonna, thing. I was going to ask just from my own mail, read a mail, uh, like what games do you feel effective in? But I tell you what, I feel pretty effective in Pandemic, but most of that's because I get to fly places. Yeah. It's like, oh, don't worry, guys, I'll fly to Bangkok. And then I imagine the plane in my head and I imagine I'm stepping out of Bangkok and I'm like, you there, help me put out this disease. The thing about <laughs> Pandemic is I think, I, I, as much as I love Pandemic, I think that unless you are trying to put together a collection which you can kind of like, it's really useful if you've got lots of friends who you think might be interested in board games and as a way of like getting people into it, letting them play it. Although it's difficult because if you know how to do the puzzle, you kind of can't play it with them because you'll spoil it for them by backseat driving or just going, no, maybe don't do that, when you're trying not to do that. You'll do it anyway because you're a human. And so if you get the expansion so you could be the terrorist, you can play against them, and that kind of works. But the thing is, if you just want to play it yourself, if you just want to play a co-op game and you're not sure if you're going to be then playing it with lots of people... Pandemic sort of thing now, I'd probably just suggest seeing if you can borrow from someone because <laughs> a lot of people have got it. And um, it's one of those games that actually, once you've played it two or three times, you'll have an amazing time, but then you'll kind of be sort of done with it. So, yeah, see if anyone else has got it first. Okay, let's see if we can do a Blitz mailbag this time. Sure. I'm going to be reading Paul Matt. I'm uh, ready. Fing- fingers on buzzers. I want so you to ready. buzz in when you have an answer, okay? Joe Alois Litovsky says, Do you guys have specific colours you always play as? Example, I'm always the red player. Uh, Paul Dean from Scunthorpe. Hello. Uh, I'm always blue because it's the best colour and there's no reason to play any other colour that isn't the best colour because that would be silly. That's a wrong answer. It's pink or purple. Uh, Matt Lees Lees from Tipsworth. I'm going to have to ask for you to wait for me to say your name and where you're from. I'll press the buzzer, though. Matt, Matt, we've talked about this. Have I won the boat? Have I won the boat? (laughs) He's talking too much. He's talking. He's talking too much. I've won the boat. Oh, God. I thought this was good. (laughs) It wasn't good. Uh, No, Matt is, of course, correct. Uh, Blue is the wrong colour. I always go for yellows and reds and then have this this tinge in the back of my lizard brain, which must always survive and compete for dominance. That if I'm a bright colour, people are going to notice me on the board more. And if I'm doing well, they're going to notice. They're going to pull me back down. Uh, Damien Allen says, how important are hats to immersion in the tabletop realm? The answer is, of course, very very important, yeah. If you, I mean, yeah. If you do just have any kind of like hats, then it, it just. I, I think not enough games make use of hats or advise the use of hats because the amount of people I met, especially at Gen Con, is still this weird thing of I bump into so many people and they always say the review they love the most and the review that and the game they now play loads with their friends that love is Ladies and Gentlemen, mm. and I find it fascinating oh, because. That, I was really positive about Ladies and Gentlemen in my review, but ever since I had that review, I've had this sort of quite guilt in my mind because the more I played it and the more I thought about it, I kind of thought after a while, you know what, as much as I love the theme and as much as it's fun, there are lots of things about it that aren't actually that well designed and it's a bit too lopsided in terms of complexity. But the thing is, 
everyone I've spoken to, no one's cared. Everyone's been exactly the same page of being like, yeah, you're right. It isn't like, it isn't the best game, but people just love wearing hats and pretending to be <laughs> yeah. like Elizabethan people and yeah. a Victorian. And I think that, yeah, like something about dressing up and having fun with roles is something which I'd like to see more games do. It's because I the, mean, the roles are kind of preposterous and I think it lends itself to a particularly ridiculous thing that you do. Oh man, it's not available yet, so we've never reviewed it, but there were always those copies of Junta, which is a game where one of you is the head of a banana republic and then you're trying to you're giving money to you're giving your wages to your friends. I played that it's... once a while ago and you, you yeah, you get a pair of glasses that you can put on. Yeah, the thing that's the thing. You get a pair of sunglasses when you are the head of the Junta and you're basically lying to your friends. But I love that most because it's thematic and it separates you and it's funny. But then also, like, it's harder to tell if someone's lying if they're wearing really heavy sunglasses. <laughs> which is just a lovely little bonus. It's it's so so good and so clever. Uh, Nick Bristow uh, says, when mid-game and you notice someone not into it, how do you keep that player from dragging down the fun? Uh, the obvious answer is, of course, ask them to leave. Alcohol. Uh, that is the... Yeah, like, ideally, both at once. Give them a bottle of whiskey and then and tell them to, to wait leave. outside. I think yeah, that's on actually... The doorstep. Yes. That's, a re- that's the best answer. In fact, I actually, in the past, I've sometimes seen that work, but I have also seen a time where um, we were trying to play a game and um, somebody there who wasn't really playing much and they arrived a bit later and we're like, okay, well, we'll add you into the game. And she just was so bored that we were like, my friend just kept plying her with drinks in the hope that she would just be drunk and stop somehow being annoyed and bored. But she just became infinitely more annoying. She became drunk and bored. Until she was literally just, she started just picking up the pieces off the board and throwing them around the room. Oh, God. And it was just like, oh, my God, who is this woman? Why is she in my house? <laughs> I think. I think. And then you point, found out she wasn't even anyone's friend. <laughs> she just walked in. I think I actually ended up saying that out loud. In fact, but that was a bad I remember at the dice tower getting this question and saying something on the lines of, "If one person in their group is still having fun, everyone else will like grin and bear it. It's got to be a universal thing." But that's not really the question. The question is, how do you keep that player from dragging down the fun? And I don't know, man. It's kind of like it's not about games; it's about life. If you're on a walk with someone and someone's not into it, how do you keep them from dragging down mm. the fun? It's that's actually just an attribute that people have. It's not unique to board games. That's yeah, a very good and point. I think it's just a case of just assembling a group which is doesn't do that. Like, I mean, everyone has their days. Like, I'm sure I've had games where um, I've just been losing so badly, and I felt like there's nothing I could do about it. I just, in fact, we've had games where. Um, I've just been screwed at the start and I just haven't been able to do anything and mm. it's kind of annoying when you're playing a long game because you're just like I can't do anything now I'm out yeah. but it, it takes a certain sort of personality to be able to just grin and bear that and go alright whatever um, but also it's, it takes a certain type of group personality to make sure that you're actually like you almost have to bring it up. You almost have to be like, oh man, you're having a really bad time, but you're not having any fun at all because this is rubbish. I'm yeah, sorry. exactly. Like, exactly. You know. But I mean, like, these are, it's, board games is a hobby, but it's still part of just gaming and play in general. And if someone's being a jerk when you're playing games with them, then it's, it's, it's so much, it's just a huge issue. It's, you look, you need to ask anthropologists that question, not <laughs> us. Uh, Slippers X Mashina says, I've been playing the Lord of the Rings LCG recently. It's bloody hard. What do you think <laughs> about games that you lose 95% of the time? I am so bad at so many games that I just love anyway. I, I'm, I, I've definitely never won a game of Twilight Imperium, but my god, it's have, it's fun to lose and go out and just a flaming civilization that just... Here's the question, though. When do, we, when, do we get the, uh, when do we get the Dark Souls of board games? something that's incredibly hard but it's because you don't know what you're doing and not just on a mechanical level on a kind of information based level as you go through and to do that in board games without it being really annoying that would be really difficult to design it would be really difficult yeah but there's something in there isn't there 
Maybe. Mm. Unfortunately, it would be like Pandemic in the fact that once you've done it a few times, you'd be like, well, I'm done with it. Well, that's satisfying in, in Dark Souls because then you just waltz through the game and you're in control of it. With the board game, that's probably really bad. Yeah, well, the thing is. is, you say that, but I mean, something like Risk Legacy has an arc and people have been very happy going through the arc of Risk Legacy and sort of, you know, going through that experience and then drawing a line under it. Maybe it's I have a heard, yeah. Rob Davio kind of design challenge. Yeah, that's a really interesting point, Paul. I've heard some people say that the funny thing about Risk Legacy is you're kind of stuck in a room with Risk for, you know, 10 evenings or whatever. <laughs> and so in addition to the game having this arc of like, you know, uh, you you know, oh, now Africa is... I don't want to spoil it. It's been ages. I should probably swear. Now Africa's been hit by a nuke or now there's a new city in Indonesia. Um, you are also coming to terms with Risk. You're like, oh, Risk. And then you go, oh, Risk isn't very good. And then you come through the other side of that and you're like, oh, I love it anyway. It's it's, it's nuanced and it's weird. And then you go, no, I hate it. It's awful. That's why actually, obviously, Pandemic Legacy is not probably that far off, right? Hmm. Uh, it might be a while off, but I think to be honest... Oh, Pandemic Legacy is nearby, yeah. Yeah, from what I was saying earlier, like at this point, don't bother buying Pandemic. <laughs> Just with Pandemic Legacy. Oh, that's going to be so perfect for that game, because by yeah. the time you've got to grips with the puzzle, then you'll be done with the Legacy. The puzzle will change, yeah. Yeah, yeah. God. yeah. Hmm. Uh, one more. Oh, this is a... It's a, oh, it's a heavy one. Uh, fingers on buzzers again. Francis Delaney asks, how do you balance social gaming with the demands of the website? When you play for fun, do you worry... Okay, that's the less dramatic question than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> uh, no, okay, let's do this one then. Uh, heavy Cardboard, Paul, say, did you ever get a game of Virgin Queen in? Winky face. And I will remind people that Heavy Cardboard are a podcast that deal with exclusively heavy games. Winky so basically, face. They're having a pop at us there, like making fun of us because we couldn't handle Virgin Queen, which I think is quite unprofessional. And uh, and also uh, true. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Paul. You really got my back on that one. No, I was just no. A- I mean, I, I I am in it with you, and I stand beside you in the in against the wall as we are killed in the firing squad of incompetence. <laughs> we so. Confused. I sort of think the question before that, though, about juggling. I think we do all right with that. I think the thing is, you end up playing a lot more social light games because it's something that's really easy to fit into your social life, and obviously. For those of you who are new to the podcast and the website, you might not know that we're all cu- turbo cool dudes to the <laughs> to the max. Where, where was that going? Um, but the thing is, we don't just do this. I have to leave. Stuff. I have to go. And we do we do manage to balance it out all right. And the fact that we can actually like me, especially you know me and Quinn and Paul, we already understand like games and how they work. So it's kind of an efficient thing in the fact that we will like you know in our own time we might end up playing more social stuff but then when we want to review something like me and Quinn's and some other people who we, some other friends who we have who are again good at systems can just some other people who we have in a cupboard in a cupboard up. we keep them in a cupboard um, we can just get them out of the cupboard unchain them and we can just get to grips with the game really quite quickly yeah. we can understand yeah. whether or not it's good because... it's so funny how because I'm always the one in the group that learns games and it's so funny how good the rest of you guys have become at learning games yeah. whereby I'll be you know we'll be chatting around the table then I'll go Okay, and then everyone will fall silent because they know it's a fucking hard job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It and is. they'll fall, and they'll they'll listen, they'll listen, they'll listen really patiently. When they really have to, they ask a question, and I go, "That's great." And it's like a military operation. It was like actually when you were teaching me <laughs> Infinity, which we'll talk about in the next podcast um, a bit more. Was when you like, our, our mutual friend was just like sort of a bit taken aback by the process in which you taught me Infinity and the fact that you just went through the rules, and I just stood there going, "Uh huh, yep." Yep. <laughs> yep. And I just absorbed all of the rules and like didn't really have to ask any questions because it's just like, okay, just because it's this weird thing now, like I can explain rules to people as well, but it's more that you've got really good at explaining rules 
and I've got really good at processing them quite quickly. So it's not really, I think sometimes I've noticed people in comments as well being like, oh yeah, but you guys seem to like playing the social stuff. Is it a pain to have to review heavier stuff? It's like, nah, not really. No, like, no, we would, if we weren't reviewing heavy stuff, we'd be playing more heavy stuff than social stuff. It's yeah, just, it's I true, think. it's true. How about you, Paul? How do you strike a balance between playing the games that I go, Paul, can you review this? And then also just having fun. You seem to have an easy time of it. You seem to play I, fun stuff all the time. I, I, I don't know. I do okay. I guess I'm kind of similar. I'm fortunate with, with people that I know here who are also very games literate people um, who, you know, they, they're kind of similar. that They absorb rules quite well. Uh, I've had to really step my game up for learning rules myself because... I, I tend to learn by like playing demo games of stuff. I'm not very good at picking up a manual and just reading it and mm. no, I'm abstracting not either. that. Whenever I've got a new game and Quinz isn't around to teach it me, I suddenly panic. And I feel really <laughs> bad, actually, because I recommended uh, Lords of Vegas to some um, friends of mine. Um, and they were like, oh, it was amazing, but we really struggled to learn it. And I was like, yeah, yeah. They were like, it's, the manuals are very thing. good. And I was like, the manuals... That is a. I sincerely hope they never discover what a bad manual looks. Well, no, like. thing they didn't say. It, they said it was okay, but they said it was a bit fiddly. They didn't really get it. So in the end, they they watched. They just there's a, there was a video in it, a link to a video saying go and watch this video, and oh. they watched that, and that was fine. But it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, I forget that. I forget sometimes that actually, if you don't know what you're doing, these games could be quite hard to learn mm. if you haven't got Quentin Smith in your living room. Well, it, <laughs> so yeah, it can I happen. think what We've we got, should do. <laughs> We've got used to that, and and Quinn's is also good at teaching games. Mm. I uh, the one situation I will say that we did have trouble with our like social end game life um, meeting is we we had real difficulty trying to uh, find an RPG format that worked for a podcast that didn't also sap the fun out of the RPG. Yeah, uh, it became this thing of like you either have like hours and hours of endless recording of nonsense, um, but then we kept trying to work out a way of doing it that wasn't going to be that. Nah, the way to do RPGs for me for sure is like you have a long expanse, you have like a, a long afternoon or an evening, and then you just talk bollocks and pretend to be elves for six hours and that you cannot combine that with work i think no i think that's the thing is it's, it's trying to do, do the two gets really difficult because it's so difficult as well to like not just slip into just um just classic things like conversation about normal stuff and you know mm. that's you've got to be careful with that because you know we're not arseholes but you can without <laughs> knowing it be quite unprofessional if you start talking about life stuff that just isn't relevant or you yeah. know, isn't proper yeah. for broadcasting onto the internet so just having to be switched on like that is difficult and also it means when you want to stop for like having food or stop for having you know go to the toilet you can like well do we stop the recording and it, it just becomes it becomes quite difficult and we really gave it a good shot with that we did with, with that with but, um, and then just, plus on top of that we discovered we didn't like the star wars uh, rule set that it's not as much as we liked and i think also like that kind of uh the the, the the thing wasn't as good as it was and also it kind of felt like the um the characters and the way that they were like uh the way that the characters worked in that campaign was really good fun but it kind of it kind of had it had its arc and I didn't really see how yeah. it could go anymore it was just like this, Fair enough, this, yeah. this constant antagonistic nature between all the characters was really fun and exciting but it was probably a bit into untenable forever <laughs> yeah they would just actually kill themselves in a, in a spaceship uh, Paul uh, thanks for being on the podcast I've got a question Okay. Did you know that we have a website on www.shutupandsitdown.com? Yes, I did. Oh, that's good. What can people find on that website, Paul? They can find... You know what? I think the question is, what can't they find, Quinn? They can find video reviews of board games. They can find podcasts like this one. They can find excellent written reviews about RPGs, about people's experience playing games growing up they can find games news every monday which is always good games news they can find miniatures gaming stuff they can find 
anything that as an adult they need in their life do they well, need uh, to pay their utility bills? No. Do they no. need cosmetics? No. Do they need to wash regularly? No. They need to sit in front of Shut Up and Sit Down 24-7, absorbing the light from their screen. That's do they all need, they need. Do they need, do they need a quiche lawyer to get themselves out of a sticky situation? They'll never be in a sticky quiche situation if they sit in front of Shut Up and Sit Down. Great news. Fantastic. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Bye.